Well, good morning. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to the second chapter of Acts, and we're going to continue our journey here through the book of Acts, seeing how the church started, the birth of the church, and how the Holy Spirit was introduced and empowered the church to do the things that we've been called to do. It's not really the acts of the apostles, it's the acts of Jesus as he continues his ministry and his calling, not in the physical presence in the world anymore, but in the physical presence of his disciples and his followers, wherever they may be. He is with them. He said that. He made that promise. So we're seeing all those things come to fruition here. So just to kind of recap, we can't go to like a lot of detail like we have been able to do week to week, but now we're getting further along to the point that we just kind of kind of consolidate the recap to a theme to just kind of introduce some of the things that Luke has given to us as a foundation as we move forward. First of all, uh, we learned that Pentecost is a picture of God's presence. Whenever we see uh, Pentecost happening, we see the, uh, the fire come down, we hear the wind. Um, there is this violent sound that is associated with it as well. He says a sound like a mighty wind, kind of like a train or earthquake. Is the word is actually very close to the Greek word earthquake. So we have that same imagery in Mount Sinai. That's also when God's presence came down. We see that same kind of imagery. Whenever Elijah was running for his burnout that he was experiencing because nobody was being converted, even after this incredible display of God's power, and he went up against all the, uh, the prophets of Baal and Asherah, God graciously hides him away and um, he walks by him and he sees this fire, he hears this wind, there's this earthquake, but God was in the still small voice. So that's one of the connections that we see. There is fire, there is wind, and then there is speech. So we saw that at Mount Sinai, fire, wind, and then God spoke the 10 words to the people. With Elijah, remember, it was fire and wind. It was a still, small voice that was speaking. So here we see the same thing. We see the fire and the wind. And then what's the next thing that's given to us is this speech, this miraculous speech, where they begin to speak in these, these languages of all the people who are there for the Feast of Pentecost. And they're hearing the gospel and they're hearing these mighty works of God in their own language. And so I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind here is this pattern that we find there. Secondly, we see that Pentecost also signaled the intent of the Great Commission. So Jesus had commissioned all of his disciples to go into all the world and to preach this gospel. Only problem was these guys all spoke the same language. How in the world are you going to go any further than just the people who can understand your language? Even further than that, these guys were Galileans. I mean, these were not the most educated of the Jewish people to begin with. They were probably not even respected in their own country and it's kind of like in our country when we go to New York or California and we start talking, they make fun of us, don't they? Because we talk slow and we got a twang to our, our, our words and we don't know how to do the short I because everything is white rice. Um, so we, they make fun of the fact that we talk and we are seen probably no matter what kind of degrees we have or where we went to school, you're seen as uneducated if you talk like that, Right. Uh, and the same thing is true of Galileans. They had a problem with um, speaking the gutturals of their language. And so they were very easy to pick out. Whenever they came for the feast or festivals, when they started talking, ha, you must be from Galilee because of the way that they talked. And yet these guys that were from, not only from this place that only spoke one language, and not only from this area there that's not educated and not seen as intelligent, these guys begin to speak in all the language that are present there. So there's this powerful 
demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And that's really the third point. The power that was demonstrated at Pentecost is reflected of the empowerment of God's church. So in other words, God doesn't ever call us to do something that he's not going to empower us to do. Um, God doesn't call you to love your spouse without giving you the power to love your spouse. God doesn't call you to love your enemies without giving you the power to love your enemies. God is never one in all of Scripture that demands of you something that he will not empower you to do if you will let go of your control and allow him control over your life. Now, again, that's a very general way of talking about a long process of letting go of ourselves, emptying us of ourselves, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, I'm not only confuse anybody. When we get saved, we get the Holy Spirit. But there is also this awareness or this use of the Holy Spirit that doesn't come immediately. In other words, all the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us all the time. But there's this lack of awareness, and that's why the power of the Holy Spirit isn't demonstrated in our lives, because we are distracted by the things of this world. We're distracted by the desires of our flesh or our eyes or our pride, whatever it may be, and that's why we don't see that demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It's not that he's somewhere else. It's that we are not utilizing the power that God has given us. Um, the power that comes to the Holy Spirit is this powerful demonstration at Pentecost, unlike anything that's ever seen before. I want to give you an illustration. There is this um, dam in Egypt that they built that actually dams up the Nile River. It's called the Aswan Dam. Now, it's a huge undertaking. Matter of fact, the United States was going to be a part of it, and they backed out. And I, I believe it was actually England that stepped in and helped the Egyptians build this dam. Because there's a lot of controversy around it. There's even still controversy today. But you can see how big that dam is. Go ahead to the next picture. Now, you can see this is the Nile River coming out. They built the dam around it. So it's holding back. See that massive reservoir right there that it's holding back? And then, of course, whenever that water shoots through there, it creates enough energy, that one dam, to turn on all the lights of every house in Egypt. Every house, every business in Egypt can be lit up by this one dam right here. Now, I want to use that as, a, as an illustration. Go ahead to the next slide just to kind of show some pictures. You can see how massive this thing is. I mean, it is huge, and you can see the water. Once they begin to release it, that's what it looks like when it comes out the other side turning these turbines that in, in, in return are creating electricity. Now, think about this for a moment. The Nile River, before they built this, went still in the same direction. The whole time they were building this dam, they never cut off the flow of the Nile River because so many who live along the Nile River actually need it. They're dependent upon it. But there's this, this great thing that really happens because the Nile River was only beneficial to those who actually lived close to it. But after they built this dam here and the power that it creates, everyone in Egypt benefits from the Nile River, not just those who live close to it. And I don't know if that translates or not, but I think that's a great picture of what's happened at Pentecost. The Spirit has been here the entire time. The Spirit is present in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it talks about the Spirit of God being on certain people for certain projects that God has called them to do. The Spirit is on them. The Spirit goes before them. The Spirit is, is present with them, right? But it was only certain people at certain times for certain reasons. Not everyone receives it. But now at Pentecost, we see this incredible power that is present in the Old Testament, but very small ways now is available to every single person, which is the importance of recognizing those words all 
all of them received the Holy Spirit. Every single one of them received. Why? Because now the benefit of the Spirit of God is available to every believer in Jesus Christ. First to a few in Israel, now the lights are on in the entire world. The lights will be turned on in so many different hearts because of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Truly, Pentecost changed everything. The last thing I want to say, just as a recap and kind of introduction in our test today, is that Pentecost began the recreation, or maybe you could say the restoration process. So what sin had done in the Old Testament and the, the effects of sin that we have felt, not only personally, but generationally, culturally, these things now are beginning to be reversed. In other words, at least the ability to go in the other direction is now empowered in those who follow after Jesus. So all of this is the beginning of what we find in Pentecost. Now let's look at a passage that we're going to look at today, which is verses 5 through 13. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, which is not all that shocking, right? Uh, Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. In other words, converts to Judaism who were Gentiles, but they've converted to Judaism. Cretans and Arabians... We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So what happened here is a display of the presence and the power of God. We see a miracle of speaking because the text tells us very clearly that this is a miracle of the the disciples, now apostles, called apostles, speaking in languages that they did not know. So much so, they're speaking in these tongues that they have not had an education in. They are overpowered with the Spirit of God. Now, what's happening in their mind, I have no idea. I wish Luke would have given us more detail. I wish he would have given us like a a bird's eye view of afterwards, let's go interview one of these guys and say, now, as you were speaking, what was going through your head? Did you realize that you were speaking a whole other language? Or were you thinking in your own? Were you like in a trance and you were just talking, you had no idea what you were saying? How did that actually happen? And unfortunately, we don't know. It doesn't tell us that. And there's probably a reason for that. There's probably a reason for the vagueness of this because the the author doesn't want us to focus on that aspect of it. He wants us to focus on the grandeur, the power, the miracle of what this really represents. So there was this miracle of speaking, but there's also, it points to this miracle of hearing because they all talk about hearing in their own language. I not only hear it in my own language, I hear it in the own dialect of my language. That's actually what that means there. They hear it in their mother tongue. So it would be like you being there and you hear somebody going, hey, y'all, 
uh, I'm going to tell you about God and how powerful he is. I mean, you'd be like, oh my gosh, like that's not just English. That's not like somebody from a foreign language speaking in English that I can discern. He's speaking in my tongue the way I would say it and the way I understand it best. That's what that text means. Now think about that for a moment. So you're not talking about just languages, but you're talking about all those people who call for all those areas and every one of them is saying, I hear my own version of this language. I hear exactly the way in my hometown people speak this to me. That's what they were hearing. So there was this miracle of speaking and there was a miracle of hearing. Is that impossible? Well, Luke actually describes exactly how amazing it was to those who heard it. He uses the words, they were utterly amazed. In fact, in this second chapter, Luke has begun to just pile up words to describe the people's response to the outpouring of the Spirit of God. In verse 2, I mean, sorry, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 12, bewildered, amazed, astonished, perplexed. So all of these people are experiencing this and like, this is blowing me away, just like that young child back there. They were like, whoa, think about this. I mean, this is amazing, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And here's what's amazing as well. They were not just amazed with the content that they were hearing. They were amazed that these simpletons, these people from Galilee, knew their language, not only knew their language, but were speaking this language the way they would speak it. That was blowing their minds. You just don't expect to hear that. I mean, you expect maybe to hear someone who could speak your language, but you have to really listen. I met a guy from France uh, just this uh, Friday night, and and he could speak English, but there's still things I had to discern from him, like figure out what he was talking about, and he would use the English language, and some of the words, he didn't use them in the exact right way, but I kind of knew what he was talking about because I kind of know what those words mean and why he would have used them in that way. So there was a little deciphering on my end. But sometimes when you hear those very clear words and they sound just the way it blows your mind. I'll give you an example. When I graduated high school and before I started college, I went to Romania and Bulgaria for a mission trip, stayed there for a month. Uh, We were on this ship. I don't want to go into a lot of details. We were on this ship and Obviously, we hear people who speak Russian. Uh, we hear people who speak all those different European languages. And so whenever you're in this place, you just you hear all of this, and it just becomes a wall. Like you just you hear, and I don't know any of it. So it's just like all I hear is like sound. It's like white noise in the background. But then every once in a while, you'd hear somebody who was speaking English. And they would be like, that's the word, and you're like, ah, I can tell they're speaking English. I don't know exactly what they're saying. And sometimes they would try to speak to you, and you're like, uh, that's not really the way you'd say that. I'm not really what, know what you're talking about. But we were on this boat in the middle of, I don't even know what river this was, but we were going down this river in a boat, and it was like a tourist-type thing that we were doing on one of our off days. And the same thing, you get on there, you kind of have the people around you, and they all speak it. I'm telling you, you walk in this place, and there's like, and I heard some guy going, hey, man, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I immediately was attuned to that. So I went and found this guy, and I was like, hey, are you from America? He's like, yeah, man, you from America, too? I was like, yeah. I was like, you're from the South, too, aren't you? He goes, I sure am. And I was like, man, I was like, where are you from? He said, Alabama. And I said, what part of Alabama? He said, I'm from Tanner Williams. (laughs) Now, if you know anything about Mobile, you know that Tanner Williams is not a city, okay? But the people who live in Tanner Williams think that that's a city. 
Um, and I was like, that explains everything. Why you're talking the way that you do, why I picked up on it. But it was just amazing in that moment, away on the other side of the world, in a place where all I heard were these other languages, immediately my ears were attuned to that language that I understood very clearly because everybody around me growing up, that's exactly the way that they talked. I was used to hearing that. That is exactly what they are talking about here. Astonished, perplexed, totally unexpected, grabbed my attention. That's why I'm bewildered. I'm amazed. I'm astonished. I am perplexed. And they were not just amazed with that content, but they were amazed with the power that was displayed in the way that content was given to them. This is a beautiful picture of what happened on that day and how miraculous it really was. Now, in verses 9 through 11, we get a list of people groups that were represented that day amongst all those who were hearing what the disciples and these followers of Jesus were saying. Now, as you go through it, I got a map here that just kind of shows you. I don't know how well you can see that. If you can't see it and you're interested in it, you can look at it a little later. But the numbers actually show you the way it's listed in the text. So you can see that it kind of moves from right to left, and it kind of goes a little bit in an arc um, but there really isn't a discerning passage except that it moves from all over the place. It begins in what is present-day Iran with the mention of Parthia. Then it proceeds across the Middle East to Mesopotamia, which is that area, a general area. Then it mentions Judea. And then it goes to north, which would be like central Turkey, um, mentioning Cappadocia. And then to northern Turkey, which is Pontus. Eastward to the Aegean coast of Turkey, which is what's mentioned as Asia, and then to Phrygia, and then south to the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, which is where they mentioned Pamphylia. Now, to this point, we're really with the exception of Judea, which really seems way out of place in the mention of these things. You see just kind of an arc moving from right to left, or you don't think about it from west to east, and then from southeast to north to southwest. Now, after he mentions Pamphylia, there's really no pattern that's discernible after that. He mentions Arabia and, and some others there at the very conclusion. So I think it's not so much about who was there, but this was to create a visual picture of an ingathering of God's people. So think about this. The text tells us that they're speaking to Jews. Okay, So these are Jews that have gathered together for the feast. And we know they have not quite broken that barrier to go to the Gentiles quite yet. That's not the focus of the ministry. Jesus even said, uh, this is first for the Jews. I've come to call the lost sheep of Israel back together to gather those scattered sheep. Well, look at the picture of that, how all of these people have come back to this place, and coming back to this place, the one thing that would separate them would be language, but now it's the one thing that actually unites them. It's the one thing that they all can hear and understand is this message of God. So I think one of the visuals here is the scattered are now coming home. The scattered are being regathered. So now verses 12 through 13 give us the response of the crowd to this experience. Let's look at that. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So that's one group. We'll look at the other group, verse 13. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Or in other words, they are intoxicated. So this begins another trend that's going to run through the rest of the book. Everyone who witnesses what the disciples do, what these apostles do, are astounded. But some believe and some find reasons not to believe. 
all are astounded. Like, this is amazing. I never have seen anything like this before. But then notice that the crowd will immediately split to those who believe and those who literally find reasons to convince themselves not to believe what they've just experienced. Notice in the text that some ask the question, what does this mean? Their experience didn't lead them to be skeptical. It led them to be curious. It led them to be inquisitive. It led them to seek answers. I think that's a very important thing for us to keep in mind, that whenever you see something that you can't explain, don't immediately respond with skepticism, but immediately respond with curiosity and questions to find the truth. I think a lot of times what divides us as churches and denominations is some people do some things and some people don't do other things, and we're just like, why would you do that? That's so dumb. I think the question we should say is really seeking it out. Why do people do things differently? Where does that come from? And how do you base that in Scripture? That curiosity is where we can grow and we can understand and we can come to these definitive answers of why we believe what we believe. But a lot of times we actually take the second approach, which is to immediately dismiss them as they're wrong. They're not theological. They don't understand the Bible. Um, They are off base. Now, the truth is, you might still come to that conclusion later on. You might hear something that someone's doing, practicing, preaching, and you're like, that just doesn't sound like Scripture, but you should be curious and say, well, why? What, what am I basing that on? Why does that not sound right to me? And then go back to the Word of God and pour over it. Listen to what they have to say and say, hey, this is what the Word of God says, and you said this. It's explain to me how you, how you bridge these two. And then through that, you are going to grow and understand more. You might change your perspective, which is a good thing because now you're growing. Or you are becoming more solid in what you believed before. Why? Because you substantiated it with Scripture. It's been challenged, and you remain firm on that belief. That is growth, and that's what we should do. That begins with curiosity, though, and asking questions, not with making these definitive statements. They are drunk. Instead, we should be like, What does this mean? What is behind this? I think asking questions and the kind of questions that you're asking are so important to spiritual growth. When I think another thing we can pull from this is when you become aware of God's presence, it should always elicit a response of awe. I mean, that's really these people in the first, what does this mean? Like, this is, this is obviously something I can't explain. This is obviously something that is bigger than, you know, what my mind can conceive of. These men, who I know are from Galilee, are speaking in these other languages that there's no way they're capable of doing that. What does this mean? Not just, wow, that's amazing. Why? Why are they speaking in these other languages? Why? Because God is trying to communicate with them. God wants to tell them a story, and he's showing and displaying his effort and his love for these people by coming to them and speaking it in their native mother language. However, this other group that didn't recognize it as a work of God, they recognized it as a, a work of substance. Like These guys are drunk. The problem is we've all witnessed drunk people before. And, and they don't say intelligent things. They don't make sense. They slur their words. They don't speak specific dialects of specific languages. So this is not a logical conclusion to what they witnessed unless, number one, they just weren't paying attention, or number two, 
this was just too uncomfortable to actually accept. And when you get in one of those two camps right there, you will miss God every single time he shows up in your life. You're not paying attention and you don't really care. Or number two, hey, that doesn't fit into my circle. It doesn't fit into my box. Therefore, I'm going to dismiss it as something other than God. Miracles by themselves are not sufficient to convict anyone or everyone, I should say. Think about that for a moment. God displayed this incredible miracle. Some will end up believing. It tells us at the end of this passage, once Peter gives his sermon, that 3,000 people were numbered into the church that day, which is really the beginning of the church. First altar call ever, right? Uh, And that's what happens. 3,000 believe and accept. But there are so many others who heard, who had the opportunity, but they walked away unchanged. Think about that for a moment. What about you in your own life? Are you attuned to the Spirit's work around you? Are you aware of the Spirit of God working in you and around you? Let me tell you this. If you don't care, you're never going to see it. If you're not paying attention, you're never going to see it. You have to be aware. You have to be alert. You have to be sober-minded. And if you are you will begin to see the Spirit working in ways you've never seen it before. And it'll be in the most subtle ways. There are a couple of connections, I think, that we have to see here that are implicit. Not explicit in the text, but they are implicit. Number one, there's definitely this connection to the giving of the law in Mount Sinai. We've talked about that in weeks past, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but we continue to see that kind of thing. In other words, the words are given. Here, the words are given as well. You're going to see next week, Peter gives like this great sermon, and the content of that sermon is really all, a lot, very closely to what Moses even preached, uh, both at, um, in Deuteronomy as he was encouraging them and reminding them of the covenant before they went into the land. It's very similar to what Peter says here. He reminds them of what God is doing now and what God plans to do in the future. I think the other thing, though, that we haven't talked about yet that we want to kind of paint a picture of is the reversal of Babel here. Um, if you go back to Genesis chapter 11, uh, this is where God confuses the language. You remember that? Uh, this is where God comes down. The people were building. They were, had these bricks, and they were putting them together to build this tower, this staircase, because they were going to reach God. Now, they weren't doing it to reach the God. They were basically saying, look, we can go to the heavens because that's where the gods exist, and we're going to get to them. And, and this is how it unfolds in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, remember, at this point, the command that God had given to mankind was to work the field, to work the ground, to stay apart from each other and work the land. And immediately after the rebellion of Cain, what happens was everybody wanted to come together in one city. Because together, we can do a lot of things. We can do powerful things. The other thing is, when you get a very tight-knit group of human beings, the, the growth of sin is always multiplied. Okay, uh, Look at the big cities in America. 
Uh, where, where do you find the worst kind of culture? It's where human beings are packed very closely together. Okay? And that's what's happening here. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So you see God sending them all out over the earth because there, as they were working together to build this tower, they were all speaking one language, but they were speaking it in rebellion against God. God says, if we let them continue to do this, there's nothing that's impossible for them. So God comes down very simply. He confuses their language and they start talking in these other languages. God creates them all at that moment. And then they begin to find people just like in, in, in the, the others. You start hearing somebody talking like you and something you understand, you begin to congregate together. So there began these groups of people, these nations, and then from there, they began to disperse according to the languages that they were speaking. And that was the beginning of the nations that spread throughout all the earth. Well, you know, that was because of sin, because of the rebellion of the human heart, because of pride. Notice here that now with the coming of the Holy Spirit, there is a, I would not use the word reversal, but there is almost a undoing of the effects of sin is the picture there. Sin brought about chaos. Now the giving of the Holy Spirit brings about this unity and this understanding and this knowledge and this ability to understand. Now, the reason I say it's not a reversal, a true reversal of, of, of a Babel is because there's not one common language anymore, but there is the ability to transcend language so that a message can come across. I think the important thing to see here is that it is the beginning of the reversal of sin. Israel, remember, could not come close to God, could they? Remember on the mountain, they said, don't let anybody come any closer because my presence is going to be there. And yet in this picture, we have the presence of God coming on each individual and actually residing in the person. We see at Babel the confusion of the language that was brought there. And now we see a miracle of speaking and hearing. Think about that for a moment. Instead of confusion, there is unity and there is understanding and there is the ability to hear and recollect and, and to understand. So this is a miracle of both speaking and hearing. Why? Because now the disciples could speak in language that they understand, but it's also a miracle of hearing and understanding that God is allowing them to understand for the first time the gospel and the mighty works of God. So here's my point. You could get so caught up on this passage going, well, is it a miracle of speaking or is it a miracle of hearing? And it goes back to that old adage of don't miss the forest for the trees. It's a miracle of both. And that's the point, is that this is a beautiful picture of what the Holy Spirit affords us to be able to communicate more clearly and to be able to understand better, okay? When you have the Holy Spirit, guess what? In your marriage, if you submit to the Holy Spirit, you will communicate better and you will hear more clearly. Why? Because we all know that without the Holy Spirit, we're not very good at those things, right? We hear what we want to hear, or we hear exactly the words people are saying, and then we hold those words against them. 
Let me just remind you of something that is so true about human language. Meanings are not in words. Meanings are in people. Words are just a medium that we use to try and convey what we're feeling and thinking on the inside. But as we communicate with one another, what do we hold on to? You said, well, that's not what I meant. I was, but you said, see, we hold on to those words, but those are just the mediums. And so whenever we let go of that, what happens is we really try to hear what that other person is trying to convey. You say to them, you use these words and it made me think this. Could you say it another way? See, that's an effort to understand. And when the Holy Spirit comes, not only does he bring us the ability to communicate better and to understand better, but he brings us the humility to why we even want to to begin with, right? We're not sitting there being defensive in our... And so that's a picture of how it works in marriage. But I could give you an illustration of how it works as fathers and their children or mothers and their children, how it works with people within the church, how it works with people within the community, how it even works in, in antagonistic groups like the LGBTQ effort out there. You know, it's very easy for us to just go, no, they're out there, we're in here, we hate them, they hate us. But you know what? How's the gospel ever go forth unless we learn to listen and to communicate in a language that they understand. And again, this is all about the gospel going forth. It's about how the message of Jesus is going to reach the uttermost. And if we all congregate together and stay in the upper room because it's more comfortable, then we're never going to fulfill what God has called us to do. Again, we don't have to accept principles. We do not accept principles of the world. But we do have to learn how to let the Holy Spirit lead us into places that we normally wouldn't go and maybe say things that we normally wouldn't say and talk to people that we normally wouldn't talk to because it's a part of the kingdom of God, not a part of my agenda. And that's the difference here is submitting ourselves to the agenda of God instead of our own agenda. While these are definitely all the things I think that are in view in this passage, I also don't think that they're the explicit themes that come from this. Let me just give you a couple of those. The explicit things that come from this is, number one, an empowered church. So look how there is this building of expectation in this event in the chapter one. So Luke builds us with this anticipation of what's going to happen. Now with the coming of the Spirit, the witness has begun, and they are testifying to the things of Jesus Christ. It began with the miracle of enthusiastic praise of these Spirit-filled Christians who are speaking in these different languages, and they're declaring, according to the text, the mighty works of God. We don't know what they are. Maybe in creation, maybe in Jesus Christ, maybe all of those things. But but they're declaring the mighty works of God. And that's going to be followed by a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered message that Peter begins to speak in the next text. And then it's going to culminate with the immediate harvest of 3,000 converts to Christianity in verse 41. Let me ask you a question. I just want you to just answer this inside your own heart. Don't you long to see that again? I mean, is that something that we should only expect at the beginning of the church, or is that same spirit available to us? And if that same spirit is available to us, should we not have expectations like this? Not that it's going to happen exactly like this, because I think this was a momentous occasion that signified the beginning of the church, but I think the elements of it, that should be a part of our expectation. We should be able to communicate with people that we don't completely understand. We should expect that the Spirit's going to use us to deliver a message. We should expect that people would be convicted by the message that we speak and the message that we live by the power of the Spirit. I think what we see here, these are the first fruits of the Spirit. 
Do you remember Matthew tells us that when Jesus died on the cross that the earth shook? And it says that when he rose from the dead, that it was so powerful that other graves opened up and other godly people came forth from the grave. Do y'all remember that passage? If you don't, go read the end of Matthew. It's a little, little section there, but it's pretty powerful when you read it. It literally says that other people came out of the grave and went and presented themselves in Jerusalem. Okay? So those were the first fruits from the dead. Jesus was the first one, and then it was showing the first fruits, this promise of resurrection that comes with Jesus' resurrection. I think here we have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, this is just the beginning. This is the result of the outpouring of God's Spirit that's going to continue in even more encompassing dimensions, eventually including the Gentiles named among the converts. So Pentecost is the foreshadowing of this worldwide mission, which is what Jesus told them from the very beginning this was going to happen. He even told them the Gentiles were going to be eventually included in this great kingdom of God. So it's almost like Pentecost is the beginning of the end. Why? Because Jesus says, this is what's going to keep happening until I return and I make all things new. So this is the age that we still live in, the power of the Spirit, giving us the ability to take the message of God, to declare the wonders and the works of God to people who are different than us, who speak different than us, and look different than us. And this really begins the last phase of God's redemptive plan. Through Jesus, He saved us, He adopted us. Through the Spirit, He now empowers us, and He now sends us. So Pentecost is this picture of what we are called to do. If you think about that map again, think about all the nations came in and heard, but after this message is given and those 3,000 converts are there, now all of a sudden they're dispersed again back to their nations and the gospel is going to go with them. They're going to declare in their own nations, in their own communities, what they experienced back in Jerusalem. So it really is like this the same picture of Babel, where everyone was dispersed because there was confusion, but now everyone's going to disperse back with clear understanding. God is overcoming sin. Sin is what brought us to a point of not understanding. Sin is the one that brought us to a point of not having a connection with God and having to be far away. Sin is what kept us from experiencing the kingdom of God in its fullest measure. And now that Jesus has defeated death, hell, and the grave, guess what happens? All of those measures of sin that we have experienced the consequences of, those begin to be mitigated. Now, all of a sudden, we can come close to God, and He can dwell inside of us. Now, all of a sudden, we can be His ambassadors to the rest of the world. Now, all of a sudden, we can be filled with the presence of God, and we can display the works of God. We can declare those things because we understand them with clarity because of the Spirit of God. We are empowered to be the witnesses that He has called us to be. There's a whole lot that you can take from this, but I think two things, number one, that I would focus on. Number one, how amazing is it that God even cared enough to include us in his kingdom? What a beautiful picture of the measures that God went to to offer you salvation, restoration, and to give you a mission and a purpose and a hope and value to your life. You're living for something bigger than yourself if you're living for the kingdom of God. But the other thing is, isn't it awesome that God cares about the clarity of our communication? Not just when we declare the gospel, but the Holy Spirit, as Paul will go on to teach us in his letters, the Holy Spirit is there to guide us in our personal relationships with each other, husbands and wives, parents and their children, siblings together, families together, extended family, in the church and in the community. 
The Holy Spirit is the gift that God has given us to fulfill the message and the mission that he's given to us to do and to proclaim. What a powerful picture of how God empowers his church to do his will. And this is just the beginning. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, what a beautiful picture and a reminder to us that we have choices. We can ask questions out of curiosity and amazement, or we can see things that we can't explain and then just dismiss them because they don't make us feel the right way. They make us a little bit uncomfortable. Lord, I pray that we would be in that first group, that we would not dismiss the pulling of the Holy Spirit in our souls and in our spirits. Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity to our minds. Lord, if there's any here today that don't know you as their Savior, and Lord, don't know that their sins are forgiven, I pray that today would be the day that you would make the message of the gospel so clear to them and that they would respond with, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? How can I benefit from this? How can I respond to this? How can I understand this more? And then, Holy Spirit, I pray that you make it alive and real to them. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And for so many others that maybe have already made that great decision in life, I pray that today would be the day that they understand how to attune their lives to you, how to have conversations with you throughout the day, how to be aware of your work around us, how you want to empower us to do things bigger than ourselves, unexplainable from a human perspective. Lord, that should be our testimony, that our lives live for something that we can't explain from a human perspective, that we can only say, look what God did. Lord, help us to be aware of the amazing things around us. And we give to you this time that we've had to search the scriptures, and we ask a blessing to the teaching of your word. May it produce fruit. May it fall on the good ground, and may it bring a bounty for your kingdom. And we ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus. Amen.